Well, here we are finishing up our very last chapter of Romans. We're starting the last part of chapter 15. And right now we're going to do the, the first part, verses 14 to 33. And so let's begin by reading those verses, chapter 15, 14 to 33. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. Then I have good reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you, but now, since in these regions, and since, but now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contributions for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessings of Christ. I appeal to you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from unbelievers and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Well, in the 1800s, Philip Bliss was asked to write a song to commemorate the first issue of a new religious periodical called Words of Life. And he gave Bliss a text from John 6, 67 to 68, where it's recorded that many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Well, Philip Bliss, having read these verses of Scripture, penned the well-known old hymn. And it's an older style hymn. We older folks would know it. But Bliss got the words right. Just listen as I read the words. Sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see, wonderful words of life. Words of life and beauty, 
teach me faith and duty. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Second verse, Christ the blessed one gives to all, wonderful words of life. Sinner lists to the loving call, wonderful words of life. All so freely given, wooing us to heaven. And then there's the refrain, wonderful words, beautiful words. This, the third verse says, sweetly echo the gospel call, wonderful words of life. Offer pardon and peace to all, wonderful words of life. Jesus only Savior, sanctify forever. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Why would I begin the study today with the words from this hymn? Bliss got it right when he wrote them. And because we've come to that part of Paul's letter, which is the closing, he was repeating a lot of what he had said in the first part of the letter. But before he finally signs off, he perhaps has second thoughts on his letter, which is full of strong doctrinal teaching to a church he had not founded and a church he had not visited. He didn't want to appear to be insensitive or unloving or presumptuous. He wanted to make sure they were not offended. Did they possibly think he isn't confident that they're true believers? And he goes out of his way to assure them that he knows and appreciates their qualities. He mentions their knowledge and their ability to teach and admonish each other. So why write all these previous things he had written? Why go over what they knew? And the answer is in verse 15. He uses the phrase, do you see it? By way of a reminder. He tells them as a minister of Christ Jesus, to them, it was his duty to proclaim the gospel of God. So that by hearing and being reminded of these foundational truths, they'd be exhorted and admonished to live lives pleasing to God. To present by the mercies of God their bodies, a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God which is their reasonable service. The first verse of that hymn speaks loud about the wonderful words which teach us faith and duty. Paul speaks of his ministry as a priestly one. He speaks of priestly service. What a strange way to talk about himself. But not that he actually presents his converts as a sacrifice, but as, as he presents the gospel and is believed by the converts, they through faith become a holy and acceptable offering to God. In the Old Testament, the priest mediated between the people and God by offering sacrifices so that the people could relate to God, though it was in a limited way. But Paul mediates in the way that as he carries the gospel from God to the Gentiles, they hear and respond in faith. God makes them acceptable to himself through his gospel by his Holy Spirit. So Paul knew he was writing to a church that knew and practiced the faith, but he also knew that within that church body there were many issues. And if you remember some of the issues that Paul addressed, he reminded them, he called them to remember, to remember what had been given to him, to them. Remember how he would explain what God had done through Jesus, and then he would follow up with the word, therefore. He would exhort them in what he felt God wanted them to hear and remember. There's just a few little verses that I remember. He said, therefore, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And then he said, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord. So there was these therefores, and that, that was followed by exhortations. 
And of course, Paul also reminded them they could not live out the therefores without the strength of the Holy Spirit, which they had been given by Jesus' righteousness on their behalf. So Paul explained he had the right to write to them boldly, for they were his responsibility. God had appointed him to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and he told of the objective of his ministry to the Gentiles. First of all, in Romans chapter 1 and 5, he stated that his mission was to bring them onto obedience of faith. Obedience of faith among the Gentiles. That was his God-ordained mission. And later he states this in chapter 15 and verse 18 that we're reading. He's proud of what Christ has accomplished through him in bringing the Gentiles to obedience. He doesn't mention faith in this part of the verse, but it's understood that obedience is the consequence of saving faith. We want to obey what we know is God's desire, don't we? He's given us that desire in our heart to obey him. And God has made it clear in his word what it is he does desire for us. So Paul says, what Christ has accomplished has been done by what I have said and done. And notice he gives the glory to Christ. Always the spotlight is on Christ. And he mentions how Christ accomplished through him to bring the Gentiles to obedience. And he mentions several things there in those verses. Word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, and by the power of the Spirit of God. Words and deeds. John Stott explains very tersely, very succinctly. Words explain, but deeds dramatize words. Walk the talk. And so in verse 18 and 19, Paul also mentions the various means Christ used to bring the Gentiles to belief and, of course, to obedience. And Paul refers to these signs and wonders in verse 19. Now, they indicated the arrival of God's kingdom. The miracles indicated God's power over nature and how people were amazed at them. The signs or miracles' chief purpose was to authenticate the ministry of the apostles. Now, can God do a miracle today? Of course he can. Why would we even think he couldn't? And we know there are times, and and I know you've heard it, I've heard stories where people have gone to the doctor after being given a certain diagnosis. They go back and the doctor says, well, I can't explain this, but we can, because we know God can do great things. However, these miracles were done to lay the foundation of Christ's kingdom, to authenticate what the apostles said was God's truth. But now the truth that Christ's kingdom has come was authenticated by the greatest of signs, Christ's resurrection. God showed his satisfaction that the price of sin had been paid by raising Christ from the dead, as Acts 2 and 32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it, Acts 2, 32. And so no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And I think that's what Paul was explaining right here. Now he finishes describing his ministry in in verse 19 by saying that it was through the power of the Spirit. That little phrase is separated from the signs and wonders. And and, um, he separates it because its its meaning is different. Physical miracles are not the only way in which the Holy Spirit is displayed. And again, I like the way John Stott puts it. He says, his usual way is through the word of God, which is his sword. And Paul, in writing to the Thessalonian church, said to them, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Just want to ask you today, how can you explain what happened to you when you became a believer? I can't explain 
the actual happening, but it did. I can't tell you what happened when actually I came to know that this word is true, that Jesus was who he said he was, but it did happen. And so there wasn't some thing that came over me. There was just this truth in my head and in my heart. I knew. Jesus explained it to Nicodemus in a way that was very clear to understand. He said in John 3 and 8, The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. When I became a believer, something happened. I know that the words in the Bible were from God. I knew when I heard the word preached about the Lord Jesus that they were true words. I can't explain it. And Jesus couldn't either. He just told Nicodemus, you don't know the way the wind comes or where it goes, and that's the way it is with the Spirit of God. So if any of you have a notion that your conversion was no biggie, think again. I had somebody say to me when I asked them if they'd give their testimony, well, I don't have a very exciting testimony. Nothing really happened. And I say, hey, just think about this. John Stott says it really clear, and I'm going to read it twice because I thought, boy, he really nailed it. Every conversion is a power encounter in which the Spirit through the gospel rescues and regenerates sinners. Isn't that something? You're here, I'm here, millions of people all over the world are believers because the Spirit of God convicted them, brought them to the point where they knew they needed a Savior, they repented and turned to Christ. I'm going to say this again. This sentence is so good. Every conversion is a power encounter in which the Spirit, through the gospel, rescues and regenerates sinners. I just really think that's such a good sentence. We were all lost, all under the wrath of God. Paul told us that in the very first chapter. Because originally when God created Adam, he endowed him with everything he would need. But he deliberately rebelled. He asserted himself. He wanted to be like God. And he fell and became the victim of his own base nature and under the power of Satan and the principalities and forces that were greater than himself, under forces that manipulate him. He's estranged from God, alienated. And so, and I say this he, but it's also she, because it's mankind, womankind. He, in his fallen state, strives to be happy, to seek what will make him happy. But he can't be happy. And so God has given him over to his own passions to try and find that happiness. We read that in chapter 1. God gave them up. So we say, how hopeless this all is. How can, how can we change people? How can we get through to them? Well, we can't. But we can be used. God has a plan, and that plan is still in operation. And there's a way back to God. And what did he do? He sent his son to redeem the lost. Jesus bore that guilt and that shame on a cross, and he suffered and bled and died. He rose on the third day from the grave, and he lived and walked among men and women. He went back to the Father and, and sent a wonderful friend, a comforter, the Holy Spirit. And as the apostles began to preach and teach, wonderful things happened. In his mercy, God drew men and women to himself through the Lord Jesus, and by his Spirit he caused them to see the truth about themselves. And they repented and were born of God. And Paul took us through all that in chapters 3 and 4. So in verses 20 to 22, we have to move along because there's a lot to cover here. 
Paul gives a little information about how he traveled and he pioneered many churches. He sums up for them his past 10 years of labor, including the three missionary journeys. And that's a very modest summation of what he'd been doing and why he'd been delayed in coming to them. Well, in verse 24, he says he's only going to be passing through on his way to the unevangelized field of Spain. He's looking forward to enjoying fellowship with them. Remember in chapter 1, 11 and 12, verse 11 and 12, he wrote these words, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is why we may be, or sorry, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. He longed to see them. And I thought that was interesting, mutually, mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Well, why would Paul need encouragement? I mean, he was a big-time pastor. He could quote you scripture and theologically tie you up in doctrine. Ah, but he's a man, not a superhuman. He's just a man. And often I think we think of our pastors. I like to go up. I know, you know, we love to go up and, and be real with our pastor. And I know he loves that. And he needs encouragement. All our pastors do. Because they're human. They're just human. But they've been called of God to, to lead us and to teach us, but there's that humanity about them, that uh, there are times of discouragement, there are times of temptation. We, we think, oh, that would never happen. But we need to really be praying for them, really pray for them, for everything, for their families, for temptation, for issues in the church, things that we can't imagine uh, looking after that many people. We have enough trouble with our own family and a few kids. I mean, can you imagine? You've got all these sheep, and we're like sheep. We're, we're little sheep. But then on the other hand, too, we have to be careful that we don't idolize these men because we can become just such idolaters. We talk about these men who are great speakers, and, and we really hold up what they are saying when we really should be praying for them, praying that God will use them. So Paul adds something that would make us think that he's also hoping for something else, not just encouragement, but for their support. He uses the phrase, to be helped on my journey, thereby you. Someone once made the comment that Romans is really a missionary letter, and I guess it is. We always think of it as doctrinal and and how many things we learn about God. But he wants them to assist him practically with provisions and money, And he's letting them know in advance so that they will get behind him in his spread of the gospel. Well, in verse 25, he informs them of his travel itinerary. He's going to sail from Corinth to Jerusalem because he has a collection that has been taken up for the poor in Jerusalem. And what really hit me, I always thought, oh, isn't that great? They're helping the poor in Jerusalem. But it's more than an example of sharing with God's people who are in need. Because by telling the Roman Christians, who were mostly Gentile at that church he was writing to, that he's going to take this gift to Jerusalem, he's hoping that they will see the debt that they owe to their Jewish roots. He talks about that in chapter 11 and 18. And thereby, he's showing his commitment to the Jewish Christians. And so he wants to discourage the division between the Jew and the Gentile Christians. And it it had arisen. It seems that it's occurred in that church. So he's prompting unity and a mutual devotion within the body of of the church. He's asking the Romans to pray for him. He senses there will be trouble. He mentions the unbelievers in Judea. 
And if you want to read of the happenings when he went, you should read Acts 21 to the end of the chapter. It's, it's interesting reading. Well, as I thought about this, he's, he's asking and promoting unity. How devoted are we to the work and the vision of our church? Or the vision of our church, not the division. Did I say division? Sorry. <laughs> the vision. Okay. I remember when Pastor James first came, and if he's listening, he'll know. He talked about our vision of the church. He talked about the ministry that we each had. And then he looked like he was hugging a tree. So for those of you listening by podcast, I'm hugging a tree. He said, this is not your ministry. Whatever you're doing at the church, this isn't yours. And that can happen, can it? If this is my ministry and nobody is going to take this. I'm going to do this because I really love doing this. And he, he was more or less, you know, directing us to, to seek God's leading so that if there are changes in the ministry, that we can adapt to them, that we can say, this is your will, Lord. If someone else is put in a place of service or if, if somebody is removed, that we have to say, this is God's will because we have to trust our leadership. And so I always remembered that. I thought, well, you know, Lord, as much as I love doing this, if next week it happens that somebody else is, somebody's deciding that this isn't for, for me right now, I'm okay. I'm so thankful for Barb taking over and becoming the deacon of women. Such a relief. It was so good. I didn't realize how good it was. And I'm sure there are times when people who are in full-time ministry, and I mean, I'm not, this isn't, but there, there is a pressure there. And that's why pastors need sabbaticals. Um, it should be written into every church. Uh, we have never had this before. My husband was quite used to sabbaticals because they had it written right in their little constitution and whatever you call it. And I think it's a, a wonderful thing for us to relieve people same way our government of our church, you can serve two, three-year terms, and then you're off for a year of refreshment. And uh, it's good for us, and it's good to let God bring those along who maybe are newer believers or who are just starting to be uh, trained in ministry. It's so refreshing when there's that openness. And so that's my sermon on hugging a tree. Well, after Jerusalem, Paul is going to come to Rome, and then after Rome, he hopes to spend some time with them. He'll head for Spain. Now, that was quite a journey by sea, almost 3,000 miles. And in those days, there were hazards and uncertainty of travel. But he was committed to resume his evangelistic mission. When you see what he went through in Acts, like I said, I'm pushing Acts for you to read 21 to the end. Um, it was amazing what he, he suffered, and yet he did it for the Lord. Um, he didn't need to go to Jerusalem. Someone else could have taken the money because that was a roundabout way. He was backtracking, but he wanted to go to Rome. So now we're going to go to the next chapter, 16, the very last, and we're going to read verses 1 to 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. 
greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys, or Stachys. Excuse me, Stachys, if that's not the right way. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet those beloved greet the beloved Perses, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the Church of Christ greet you. Well, all these names, and, and again, we, we don't need to take a lot of information from them, um, because this was a greeting to the church, uh, but we still need to go over it and just look at some of the verses. Seems likely that Phoebe was entrusted with the responsible task of carrying Paul's letter to its destination in Rome. She was there probably on other business, and it was taking her to Rome, and she needed a letter of commendation to take with her to introduce her to the Christians in Rome. Letters like this were common in those days to protect people from charlatan, charlatans. And as he introduced her, he calls her, you see it there, our sister, in verse 1. And we can deduce that she was very helpful to him and many others as well, because he says that right, right at the end of verse 2. She was very involved in the church in Centuria, which was a port in eastern Corinth. The word used to describe, to describe her is a word for patroness, patroness or benefactor. So it's assumed she was a woman of means who used her wealth to support the church and the apostles. Reminded me of Lydia, remember her story. Well, in verse 3, he greets, he greets Prisca and Aquila. And Prisca is, um, is like you'd call me Bev, but I'm Beverly. It's just a little term of endearment. Greet Prisca and Aquila. So how would he know them since he had never been to Rome? Well, the first mention of his meeting with them is found in Acts 18 and 2. They had originally lived in Rome. In fact, Aquila came from Pontus on the southern shore of the Black Sea, and he and Priscilla lived in Rome. But in AD 49, Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from the city, and they ended up in Corinth. And then after the death of Claudius uh, in AD 54, they returned to Rome. So that's how he had met them. Well, in reading these names and their descriptions, we see people who show many of the marks of true fellowship. For example, he mentions Mary in verse 6 as a hard worker for those in the church. She was actually living out chapter 12, verse 10. Now, most of these names are Gentile names, and that sheds further light on Paul's command to the Gentiles that they weren't to lord over the Jews. Remember in chapter 11, he talked about that. And in chapter 14, not to pass judgment on them. It was a very diverse church, not only you know, socially, but even gender-wise. Uh, nine out of the 26 greeted were women, four of whom Paul singles out as working hard. And the, the word for working hard there is a strong exertion. That's the way it's described. 
it makes me think of Nancy Parker. She'll probably be upset with me for saying it, but that, there's, a, there's a woman who, who exerts herself, and she's everywhere, working hard. Well, let's go on, and we'll read the last verses, 17 to the end, because we need to move along here. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, appetites by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, or Sosipater, or Sosipater, whatever you want, whatever emphasis you want to put on the wrong syllable, it's up to you. Okay, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, that's his amanuensis, his secretary, he would dictate and Tertius would write, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. So you can see some of these men were quite prominent. And so, uh, again, quite a diverse church. And then his great doxology. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul turns from greeting now to warnings. Then he sends messages, and then finally his doxology. Throughout the time of the New Testament church, there seems to be the threat of false teachers. And we studied that in some of the other books we've, we've been looking at you know, in the past. Paul does not identify here what they're teaching, but that their characteristics are clear. They're divisive, they teach contrary to the gospel, they're self-serving, and they persuade people with flattery. Uh, it could have been that some of them were teaching that you need to obey the law, the old laws. Uh, the characteristic that could be the most dangerous is the very last one I mentioned. Danger to the Roman Christians whom Paul had already warned about boasting and thinking too highly of themselves. So if someone came along and used flattery, it could very easily have turned things. Paul has two ways of dealing with divisions caused by false teachers compared to divisions over disputable matters. About the disputes they had, Paul teaches them to accept one another fully within the fellowship. But with false teachers, he has another uh, strong um, pronouncement. He says, keep away from them. And so the maturity of the Romans does not mean they're immune to such dangerous teaching, and he sees this. So he's saying, keep away from them. He finishes his letter much the same way he began, by praising God. He wants to finish by giving the Romans confidence in the gospel he has explained, and thereby encouraging them to stand by it. As they trust in his promises of salvation through Christ, God's going to keep them secure, even though they may have to suffer in this world. And he'll certainly complete his plan to conform them to the likeness of Christ. But they must abide by Paul's gospel about Jesus, for it's the way that God will secure them for glory. 
So as he finishes, we see the importance of abiding in the gospel. It becomes even clearer. He highlights how privileged the Romans that you and I are. You and I have this mystery solved. We know who Christ was. God's gospel of salvation previously was hidden, but now God has revealed everything so that everyone can believe and call on Christ for salvation. Paul ends his letter, to the only wise God be glory forevermore, through Jesus Christ, amen. And so when I finished, I thought, you know, any good story, we need an ending. We need to know what happens. Paul finishes his letter, and then sometime after, he prepares to go to Jerusalem to bring the financial aid to the poor believers in Jerusalem, and then he'll travel on to Rome. However, while he's in Rome, something happens, and it's a very interesting turn of events. The description of what happens, um, I'm not going to tell you. You're going to have to look up Acts 21 to the end. Uh, it's very interesting reading about this man who called himself a servant of Jesus Christ, and he was commissioned for the gospel of God. To his friends in Caesarea who tried to warn him against going to Jerusalem, he said, for I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the Lord Jesus. And so right now, we've got about 10 minutes. I want you to go to page 205. The very end of your book has a review. Very interesting. And among yourselves, I'd like you to talk about question nine. What have you learned about God? What have you learned? Help each other and maybe uh, just talk about what you've learned that you maybe didn't know before. And then I'll dismiss us when it's time.